You know, sometimes we ignore uh, important things because we are distracted by lesser things. So, for example, we put off that routine medical exam because we're busy with a project at work. I'm sure you've never done that. Or we ignore paying the bills, maybe a little too long, or managing our finances because it's more fun to give time and attention to a hobby or an interest. Or we fail to spend adequate time with family or friends because we're consumed with getting our house just right or our yard looking you know, like the 18th green at Augusta. And tragically, in the process, we can ignore really important questions as well. Questions like, what happens when I die? We can ignore questions like that because we can become so distracted with lesser things. And so this morning, our goal is to stop long enough to hear from the word of the Lord and to think about really two essential questions. First, what happens when I die? And secondly, what happens after that? You see, we can live our whole lives and never ask certain kinds of questions and we can be just fine. For example, you can live your whole life never asking, you know, how big was the largest hunk of cheese ever created, right? You can live your whole life never asking that question. Josh, have you ever asked that? You probably never asked that question. And, and you can be just fine never asking a question like that. And yet there are other questions that are important, questions that if we never ask those kinds of questions we will be affected, we will be impacted for all of eternity. Questions like, what happens when I die? What happens after that? You see, questions like that matter because even if we don't ask that question, we still have to face the reality of that question. We have to face the reality of death. We have to face the reality of one day we will die. And so my goal for us this morning is that by asking what happens when I die and what happens after that, there would be two things that would come about. First, if you are not prepared to die, if you haven't dealt with that kind of question, then you would be forced to deal with that kind of question this morning. You would stop long enough, pause long enough in the next 35 minutes or so together and consider the claims of Christianity. My second goal is if you are prepared to die, if you are prepared for eternity, that you would find rest and comfort and peace from knowing that your eternity is sure and in knowing that indeed the best is yet to come. So let's ask these two questions this morning and let's see how God gives us the answer from his word. First, what happens when I die? Well, the answer to that question depends on if you are a Christian or not, if you are in Christ or not. For those who are not Christians, those who are not trusting in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of sins and for reconciliation with the Creator God, then death brings hopelessness. 
Paul makes that clear from our text this morning in verse 13. He says, brothers, we do not want your, we, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. So Paul is writing this letter to the church in Thessalonica. Members of the church in Thessalonica were worried. They were concerned. They were anxious, primarily about what had happened to their fellow believers who died and yet were Christians. You see, the church expected that Jesus Christ would return as he promised before they died. And so, as many began to die, some of them through persecution, many of them through natural causes, you can understand why the Christians in the church in Thessalonica would wonder, what, what is, what's happened to our loved ones? Where are they? Are, are they with the Lord? And so Paul writes, in part, this letter, to give them the truth and to comfort these believers with the truth that those who die in Christ are with Christ. Therefore, there is incredible hope. But this also means that the reverse is true, that those who die apart from saving faith in Jesus are, in fact, without hope. The Bible is so clear that death apart from Christ brings eternal conscious torment. In fact, Jesus repeatedly refers to the conscious torment of those who have died in their sin apart from trusting in Jesus Christ, dying in the punishment, the just punishment for their rebellion against God. And this is why the gospel is so incredibly necessary and is such great news That the God who has created all things, the God to whom all creation rightly owes its allegiance, in love has provided his son, Jesus Christ, to come into our world and to live without sin and to willingly sacrifice himself, dying on the cross in the place of all who believe as a substitutionary sacrifice. He no longer is still in the ground, in the grave, but three days later after his death, God rose him from the dead, defeating sin and death as a first fruit, as a prototype, the Bible says, of our own resurrection for all who believe in Jesus. And Jesus is now at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning and interceding on behalf of all Christians before the Father. And one day he will return for his own. And all who trust in Jesus, who turn by faith and believe in him, God has given his precious Holy Spirit to live inside us. God with us, Emmanuel, at long last. And this is such good news that it changes the trajectory of our lives and of our eternity. Which means how we answer the question, what happens when we die, not only impacts whether we are a Christian or not, but it reminds us that those of us who are in Christ, the death brings hope, death brings joy. So let's answer the question now, what happens when we die for Christians? And we can see that there is an entirely different outcome. First, for those who die in Christ, there is hope. The death of a Christian loved one is hope. Filled. Again, look at verses 13 and 14. Paul says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, 
In other words, those who have died in Christ. That you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For, or because, since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Friends, even though we grieve the passing of loved ones, we grieve with hope, with certainty, with confidence that they are not in torment, but they are with the Lord. And this is why Jesus would say in Luke 23, 43, to the thief on the cross who trusted in him, today you will be with me in paradise. That's why Paul would write to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 about how he wants to be with them. He wants to be with the church on one hand, but on the other hand, he wants to shed his body, which he calls an earthly tent, and he wants to be with the Lord. That's why Jesus would speak in Luke chapter 16, verse 19, about Lazarus, who at his death is carried by the angels to a wonderful place of peace and rest. Friends, when a Christian dies, they go immediately into the presence of the Lord. Which means, if you are a Christian, when you die, you go immediately into the presence of the Lord. And this is why we have hope. But it's not a hope like we sometimes use the word hope. Like, I hope I pass trigonometry, or I hope to graduate early, or I hope so-and-so asks me out, or I hope to visit the Grand Canyon someday. The hope of those who die in Christ is a hope that is rooted in reality. The reality that Jesus both died and rose from the grave. This is what verse 14 is all about. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Paul says the grounding of our assurance that those who have died in Christ are not gone but in fact will come back when Jesus returns, the grounding for that assurance is grounded in the reality that Jesus died and Jesus was raised from the dead. He came back to life. And just as assuredly as Jesus died and was raised to life, we can have certainty that our Christian loved ones are alive today in the presence of the Lord and will one day return when Jesus returns. Now, it's interesting that Jesus uses this word here, or Paul uses the word here, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that those who have died in Christ are asleep, those who have fallen asleep. I think it's maybe helpful to realize that when the Bible refers to those who have fallen asleep here, it's not referring to people who fall asleep, right? Like you might in a slow-paced movie, or maybe even some of you this morning tempted to fall asleep. I haven't seen any yet. But when the Bible refers to those who have fallen asleep here, it's referring to those who have died but were Christians. So they died, but in terms of their eternal soul, they are still alive. Their soul is still alive. And so Paul says, in reality, they're just sleeping. In fact, this is the same term that Paul uses later in chapter 5, verse 10, where he writes that one day Jesus will return and all believers will be with him forever, whether we are awake, meaning we haven't died yet, we're alive when he returns, or we are asleep, meaning we are Christians but have already died. 
So I think a follow-on question we ought to ask this morning is, what does it mean to be dead but alive? Like, what does it mean to be physically dead but alive spiritually? Because that seems to be the thing here, right? What happens when I die? If you are a Christian, your body is dead, but your spirit, your soul is alive. To answer that question, we need to go back to the beginning. You might remember that in the beginning, God created everything. And his crowning achievement was the creation of humanity, male and female, created in his image, embodied individuals, and all was very good. But it didn't stay good. Because you remember Humanity chose to rebel against God, and because of our rebellion, sin became a reality in our world. And every single day, every single person experiences the reality of a sinful world, of a fallen world, of a broken world. So much so that Paul would write in Romans 8 that creation itself is groaning, waiting for the redemption and the renewal to come when Jesus returns. You might think, well, what in the world does this have to do with being asleep? Well, keep your finger there in 1 Thessalonians. Flip to the left a few pages to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Because I want you to see this with your own eyes. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. The word of the Lord says, for we know... That if the tent, when Paul says tent there, he's referring to our current body in this world now. It's interesting he uses the word tent. That ought to tell us something about our eternality in these bodies right now. That if the tent, that is our earthly home, is destroyed, in other words, we die, we have a building from God. A building is different than tent, right? Building more permanent. And it's from God. It's a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So there's something that is temporary about our physical bodies that will give way to something more eternal to come. Verse 2, for in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. Right. So now Paul's using a different expression for the house to come. He says it's a heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. So while we were still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, in other words, outside the body, disembodied, but that we would be further clothed, right? embodied, but more gloriously, more wonderfully, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. And he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as our guarantee. So we know, then, That when we die here on this earth, we are immediately in the presence of the Lord. Our spirit is. But this is not our eternal home. The Bible is clear, as we'll see later, that the new heavens and the new earth is our eternal home. So when we die and our spirit is with the Lord, we are, you could call it heaven if you want. Theologians often call it the intermediate state. We are fully in the presence of the Lord. It's where Christians go. The Lord is there. It will be good. Yet we are disembodied, it seems. 
But our ultimate goal, as Paul is so clear in 2 Corinthians 5, is not to live disembodied, but to be embodied that we, with the body that we will receive when Christ returns. So for Christians, in answering the question, what happens when we die, we are immediately in the presence of the Lord. We are aware, we are conscious, our spirit is in the presence of the Lord, but we are disembodied. We're separated from our body. And Paul says, this is not ultimately what we long for. Yes, we are in the presence of the Lord. That's what we ultimately long for. But there is coming a day when there is, 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 a, is a building that we dwell in and not just a tent. There is coming a day when we will have a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. We want to put on this heavenly dwelling, Paul says, speaking of the glorified body. Remember, in the beginning, when God created the first man and the first woman, he created them to be embodied individuals, men and women. You are, to some degree, your body, created by God. And we have the hope one day that when Jesus Christ returns, we will receive resurrected, glorified bodies, that we're not living forever disembodied, or longing for the resurrected, glorified bodies that we will receive, like Jesus' resurrected, glorified body that will be ours when Jesus Christ returns. So, what happens when we die? Paul continues in 2 Corinthians 5, look at verse 6. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and home with the Lord. And Paul's saying, if you're talking about is it better to live here and now in this body or to be disembodied and with the Lord, it's better to be disembodied and with the Lord. Right? So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Here's, here's his point. If we are home in these temporary bodies and these tents, we are not home in the Lord's presence. We would rather be away from the body and home with the Lord. And yet whether we are embodied now and away from the Lord or disembodied and with the Lord, our aim is to please the Lord. And yet, as we saw, or I should say also, as we saw in 2 Corinthians 5.4, our ultimate goal is to be with the Lord, embodied with the new body that we will one day have. So from all of this, we can conclude, if you're looking for a summary statement, like it's getting way deep, just give me a summary statement. Here's a summary statement, and we're going to build on this in just a minute. When we die as Christians, we go immediately into the Lord's presence where we exist temporarily disembodied in the intermediate state. That's what happens when we die, which leads us now to our second question this morning, which is what happens after I die? Like what happens after that? And at this point, Christians are with the Lord and all is well. But as I just said, that's not our final home. That's not our final dwelling place. We're not embodied as we were created to be. We're not in the new heavens and the new earth. So what happens after we die? Let's look back at our text. Because the Spirit speaking through Paul tells us what happens next. Verse 14 Good if I got back to Thessalonians 2. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Ah, okay. So Jesus is returning, and when he returns, he's bringing an entourage. 
right? He's bringing roadies. And the roadies, the entourage that Jesus is bringing with him are believers who have fallen asleep. Those who have died in Christ who will now return with Jesus Christ gloriously. And now in verses 15 and following, Paul is going to explain in a bit more detail how that is going to happen and what that's going to be like. Verse 15, for this we declare to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Friends, one of the most significant things that will happen after we die is that Jesus Christ will return. He will come back to our world. And according to verse 14, as we saw, he will bring with him those who have fallen asleep, those who have died as Christians. Jesus promised he would return. In fact, several times throughout his ministry, he comforted his followers with the truth that he would return one day. And just notice, his return will be obvious and just look at the words that are used in verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. This is not a secretive event here. This is obvious. People will see him and he will hear him. <clears throat> you might think, well, how is that going to happen? How is everyone going to see him and hear him? Is it, you know, now we... Have Instagram, everybody be videoing, oh, Jesus is back, and somehow it's going to pop up on everyone's devices. I tend to think not. We're not exactly sure how everyone will see him, but we know, according to Scripture, every eye will see him and every ear will hear him. I think it's helpful what New Testament scholar G.K. Beale writes when he speaks not about thinking of this necessarily in terms of in one geographic location, Jesus Christ descending from the sky. But he writes, the present physical reality will in some way disappear. And the formerly hidden heavenly dimension where Christ and God dwell will be revealed. The old world reality will be ripped away. And the, new dimension, and the dimension of the new eternal reality will appear along with Christ's presence. When Christ appears, he will not descend from the sky over Boston or London, or New York City, or Hong Kong, or any other localized area, when he appears, the present dimension will be ripped away, and Christ will be manifest to all eyes throughout the earth. Now again, to be clear, the Bible does not go into details about how this will specifically happen. The angels told the apostles gathered together at Jesus' ascension, Jesus will come back in the same way you saw him go. He'll be lifted up from the ground. He will disappear from your sight. But we do know that when he returns, again, every eye will see him and every ear will hear him. Jesus Christ's return will bring a sudden and immediate stop to everything in the universe and we will all finally see him. And everyone, even those who reject him, will know that he is Lord. But that's not the only thing we know about Jesus' return from 1 Thessalonians. We also know that those who are already asleep in the Lord, those Christians who have died in Christ, will be re-embodied. 
with their new glorified bodies. That's what Paul is referring to here in verses 15 through 17. And his point, one of the points he's making is about ordering here. He's saying, we who are alive and present when Jesus Christ returns, we're not going to go first in getting our glorified bodies, but there's, a, there's kind of an ordering here. Those who return with Christ, who have died in Christ and returned with Christ, will receive glorified bodies first. And then we who are alive and together will receive glorified bodies. Forever we will be with him. Again, Beale helps us out here. He writes, the resurrection of the dead should not be conceived primarily as a physical rising upward from the grave, but a transformation of an old world body into a new creational body that can inhabit the dimension of the new world in Christ and God's presence. The point is that our bodies will be transformed into bodily new creations fit to inhabit the new creation. The old fallen body is like a cocoon that will wither away and God will cause a newly created body to emerge from it that is suited to live in a new dimension. I mean, think about that. There is a day coming when you and I will be re-embodied with the gloriousness of bodies that are untarnished by sin and the effects of the fall. That's amazing. Like We have no idea what that will be like. I mean, even the most glorious of bodies. I mean, like yesterday, Tara and I were at the hospital. We got to hold a little one-day-old baby, new addition to our church family. Glorious. Right? Doesn't get much better than that. Oh, but it does. When we receive glorified bodies from the Lord that are unhindered and unimpacted by sin, where we might fully worship our Savior. And in that day, when Jesus Christ returns, he will bring with him those who are asleep. And in a moment, they will receive new bodies, and then we will receive new bodies. And we arise together, we'll meet the Lord and welcome him to his rule and reign. And you can see why Paul's response to all of this is verse 18, therefore encourage one another with these words. Like, beloved, it's okay to cry and to mourn over the effects of a fallen sinful world. It's okay to mourn and to cry as we say goodbye to friends and family members whom we will not see for a long time. Yet for those of us who are in Christ, we cry tears of hope, knowing that death is not eternal and separation is only for a time and the best is always yet to come. Let's go back to our statement that we made earlier and let's add a bit more. When we die as Christians, we go immediately into the Lord's presence where we exist in a temporary disembodied state. That's what happens when we die. And now we can add to that what happens after that. When Christ returns, he will bring all those who have died in Christ with him. And we will be re-embodied with new glorified bodies where we will forever live with the Lord in the new heavens and the new earth. And now the question that you are thinking probably right now, the question that Paul's audience certainly was thinking because it's the question that he addresses next. It's the question, when? 
Like when will all this take place? And Paul continues. He says, now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there's peace and security. And sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. So when will all this take place? When will Jesus return? Paul says we're not to speculate. Jesus himself said in Matthew 24 that no one knows the day or the time except the Father. But clearly, according to verse 3, he will come back unexpectedly. It will catch people off guard, especially those who laugh at the idea of Jesus' return. Those who think this is all just a made-up fairy tale. The Bible says that they will find to their horror that they were wrong. And as verse 3 says, they will not escape. You see, friends, just because we can't pinpoint when Jesus will return doesn't mean that we shouldn't live expecting him to return at any moment. Because God will return. God will judge the world. I mean, that's what this idea of day of the Lord that we see here that Paul writes about in verse 2 means. The day of the Lord is is a term common in the Bible, and without exception, it refers to God's judgment and the defeat of his enemies. In fact, sometimes the day of the Lord is also used to refer to God, how God's people are rescued as God judges, his, defeats his enemies. So the day of the Lord is a time when God will judge not only his enemies, condemning them to eternal separation from himself in torment, but also when he fully and finally rescues his own people, raising us to resurrected life in glorified bodies that we might be with him forever. So church, the fact that we know that Jesus will be returning shouldn't make us afraid. Paul says it should encourage us to look ahead to that day, to be about the work of the Lord even now as we wait. Look at verse 4. He says, but you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day, the day of Christ's return, to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of day. We are not of the night, nor of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Well, there are two categories of people here, those of the dark and those of the light, those of the night and those of the day. Those of the dark and the night are those who will not be prepared for Jesus' return because of the fact that they don't trust in Jesus, and therefore they will be judged. While those of the light are those who are prepared 
for Jesus' return. We're not ignorant about the fact that he will return, but we expect it and we wait for it and we're ready for it by, Paul says, trusting in and loving and hoping in Christ. The point of all of that is that those of us who are children of the day, those of us who are children of Christ are not to be worried because we know that Jesus Christ will return. We don't know when, but we're not going to be shocked that he returns. And because Jesus' return will be wonderful because we are his children. So then, rather than being asleep, rather than being ignorant or forgetful of Jesus' return, we are to be awake and sober according to verses 6 and 7. We're to live Today, in light of eternity, we're to live and make decisions and prioritize in light of the day to come when Jesus returns, so that when he does come, we will be happily surprised as we are about his work. Like, all right, he's here. In fact, this is the way Paul tells us to be prepared. I think it's amazing that here in verse 8, he emphasizes three different attributes of preparation, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Those are the same three words in the very same order that Paul cites in chapter 1, verse 3, when he commends or thanks or kind of praises the Thessalonians for their faithfulness. These are the very things the Thessalonian church was doing. Ordinary means of grace, ordinary acts of faithful obedience. And this, friends, is how the Bible says we should be found when Christ returns. Living faithful lives of faith in the Lord, love for him and his people, and hoping for the day when he will return and we will be like him and we will be with him forever. Brothers and sisters, we should worship God that he has not destined us for wrath but for salvation in Jesus. In fact, this morning, if this has all seemed heady and deep and complex, you're just trying to wrestle through this, maybe you haven't thought about these questions before, I would just encourage you to meditate on verses 9 through 11. Start there. This is written for our encouragement and our blessing. Maybe you're here this morning and you're wondering, did I, did I do enough? Am I ready enough? Are we prepared enough? I think there's great comfort and encouragement in verses 9 and 10. The Lord has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation, not through our own work. Paul doesn't say we're to obtain salvation because we did enough. We are to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. So that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. And so we do encourage one another and build one another up with these words. Encouragement is mentioned twice, 4.18 and 5.11. Which is interesting because this topic of the Lord's return can be the source of such great disunity and discouragement. So I pray that as we consider what happens when I die and what happens after that, as we consider not only as individuals, but as we consider with each other, as we talk to one another, encourage one another, meet with one another, have coffee with one another, Bible's open, we're thinking and wrestling with these realities, that this would encourage us. This would bring greater unity 
greater joy, greater love in the Lord? You see, these are important questions to ask, not only because they prepare us for eternity, they do, but because they fuel our joy in the Lord even now. Would you stand with me? Let's pray.